welcome back, rich girls and boys, to The Money with Katie Show, the show that looks at personal finance with a bit of a wider lens and deep dives into money topics that matter. I was first introduced to today's topic in fifth grade when I learned that if you ain't no punk, I should want one of these, according to Kanye West's famous song, Gold Digger. That's why today we're talking about the most romantic thing that I can imagine, the prenup. If you ain't no punk, we want prenup. We want prenup. Yeah. Our guest today is former Wall Street attorney and current managing director and partner at the Bonson Group. Her name is Kim. She is fabulous. You will hear from her shortly. She feels very strongly that women look out for themselves financially in love, and I think you will enjoy her panache. Side note, my husband is a trial lawyer in the Air Force, and I think he got suspicious when I kept asking him questions about divorce law. So, oops, sorry, honey. Uh, But we are happily married, and we have been since our courthouse wedding in June of 2021, and we will be getting married all over again in like two weeks at Garden of the Gods in Colorado Springs, which is adorable and very overpriced. But in the spirit of transparency, I have a very important admission to make for the purposes of this episode. We do not have a prenup. Weirdly enough, we talked about our beliefs around prenups in the first few years that we were dating before we were even engaged, and he said he was in favor of them. And at the time, I felt differently. I felt like it meant that he was planning on our hypothetical non-existent marriage to fail. And at the time of our conversation, I had fewer than like $100,000 in assets, and he had more than I did. I was making $60,000 at the time. I was not a business owner yet, and he was about to graduate from law school. So I figured he was going to out-earn me by a wide margin, and I didn't love the way the conversation made me feel, even though it was theoretical and conceptual in nature and like not even about us. But fast forward to us actually getting married. In a weird way, we had already kind of had that type of tough conversation out of the way. We already knew where each other stood on the issue, him thinking it was a wise move and me feeling reluctantly accepting of that. But by the time we actually got married, we had roughly equal assets, like $200,000 apiece, give or take. We didn't own any property. We didn't have any debt. And at that point, it kind of felt dumb to get a prenup because we would have both been protecting roughly the same amount of money in premarital assets. In other words, whether we protected it in a prenup or we just combined all of it and then split it all later, we would both be walking away with like roughly the same amount of money if we got divorced because we were coming in with such an equal amount. That's because I have learned since researching for this episode that you can't really protect income that you haven't earned yet. That means if you and Bay are coming into marriage with $0 a piece, there's really not a whole lot to protect. The one difference would be ownership of a home or a business, because if that appreciates in value, you can protect that, as the original value of the home or the business would be yours, but the appreciation that occurs during the marriage would then be considered marital property. And that's what brings me to my next major admission and point about why I was actually kind of dumb about my situation, despite still being happily married. Money with Katie was just a little baby business seedling when we got married, 
And it was doing about $4,000 a month in revenue on average. So like not very much money, steadily trending up. But I didn't think about the fact that by getting married without a prenup agreement, that I was effectively giving half of money with Katie to my husband, Thomas, because if shit went south, he would have a potentially legally enforceable claim to half the business. Now, the business was the only asset that I owned that was actively appreciating, and I know plenty of women who have side hustles that generate income and have the potential to become big later. So I would say if you're wondering whether you should, you probably should. And I know that all of this feels kind of depressing. The idea of getting divorced is certainly not what any of us go into marriage dreaming of. It doesn't sound fun, but the current divorce rate in the U.S. is around 41%, meaning that slightly fewer than half of all marriages will end in divorce. Though Hannah, my senior editor, did point out that thanks to her statistics class, she knows that it's more that the same person who's likely to get divorced once or twice is more likely to get divorced three to five times, so it skews the number. Anyway... I heard a funny story once from a Brighton Jones VP, female VP, who said that initially her husband wanted the prenup to protect his assets. And so she was a little bit irritated. But then many years later, she caught him cheating and their careers had gone in different directions. And she ended up being the spouse with all the money and the prenup ended up protecting her instead. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. I do think a prenup is more of an insurance policy for marriage. People don't think homeowner's insurance is depressing. You don't take out homeowner's insurance because you're planning for your house to catch on fire, but because in the event it does, you want to be protected, right? It's insurance. It's for financial peace of mind. Again, it feels kind of anti-love to discuss this stuff because it's basically acknowledging before the marriage even starts that it could fail. But the reality is not discussing this stuff ahead of time doesn't guarantee it'll succeed. It just guarantees that if it fails, both parties will have a lower chance of being able to exit the marriage in a way that benefits them, or at the very least, sucks the least. I have friends, for example, whose parents stayed married unhappily because it would have been too expensive to divorce when they were nearing retirement. And that is sad to me. I know some people will look at that and say, well, look, like they would have gotten divorced if they had the prenup. That means it's not good to have one because if you don't have one, you'll stay together. But like they stayed in a marriage that neither of them wanted to be in anymore. And that doesn't really seem like a good thing to me. That kind of seems like a trap. So your personal philosophy may be that marriage is for life and that you'll never get a divorce. And that's great. And honestly, I hope it's true for all of us. But I personally would never want to feel trapped in a relationship because of money. This is another reason why I feel strongly that women have some sort of income or financial stability of their own, whether that means they're the working 
parent or spouse, or they are a stay-at-home parent or spouse that would receive negotiated financial support post-divorce, though it turns out alimony is apparently going out of favor with judges and a husband might not have to provide child support if he becomes unemployed for any reason. We talked to our guest today, Kim, about this after we stopped recording our interview, and she was like, people find really creative ways to get out of paying alimony, and it's pretty hard to enforce, so don't count on it, which kind of terrified me, but I think is worth knowing up front. So I was stalking this subreddit the other day called Too Afraid to Ask, and one person asked a question that I think fits in really, really well with this whole stay-at-home spouse alimony topic. Somebody goes, Why do women not want to be stay-at-home moms anymore? It seems like a pretty good gig, as opposed to having to deal with the bullshit of corporate America, which, tell me that you are a man with an anonymous Reddit account without telling me you're a man with an anonymous Reddit account. But anyway, the top comment, so endearingly sincere, was basically like, Because if you are the stay-at-home spouse, you rely on another person for financial support, and it establishes a weird power differential where if you are out of the workforce long enough, you basically have to stay with them to make your own existence economically viable. And a lot of people do not want to put themselves in that position. This is another reason why, as you'll hear in the interview, Kim feels very strongly that women in particular negotiate this type of stuff in a prenup before marriage. So, In the year 1960, 50% of families had a stay-at-home mom. In 2014, that number was only 14%, according to Pew Research, which makes it sound like there aren't that many stay-at-home moms anymore. But if you look at the overall breadth of stay-at-home parents, between 70 and 75% of parents that stay home are the moms. It's kind of a rock and a hard place. It's funny because people look back on the 1950s really wistfully when the divorce rate was lower and most women stayed at home like June Cleaver and blah, blah, blah. But the reality isn't that those marriages were happier or healthier. The women just did not have the financially independent choice to leave. Did you ever watch Mad Men? Don Draper was not husband of the year just because his wife was staying at home with the kids and admittedly hot as fuck. I think it's kind of backwards to long for a time where women at the aggregate level had basically no economic independence outside of their families and more or less had to stay with their husbands who may or may not have been banging their secretaries. That is a big no thanks from me. And that's not a knock at being a stay-at-home spouse. I definitely want to have the choice. But for many women, it did not used to be as much of a choice. One could argue that now women are more pressured to work That's probably not a good thing either. And I think it does all come down to individual choice. But if your choice is to be the stay-at-home spouse one day, it's worth bringing that up with your lawyer pre-wedding to see what types of protections can be baked into a prenup to protect you in the event that you stop working, stay married for 20 years, and then get a divorce and have no source of income or newly employable skills. So, Why are prenups more common now? Why do our parents frown upon them and millennials feel like they're more worthwhile? Are millennials just greedy commitment phobes? Not quite. People are getting married later and they're working for longer. And they're also coming into marriages with more substantial debt, like that from student loans, than they used to. In 2022, the average marriage age for females in the U.S. is 27. That was true for me, actually. In 1980, it was 22. At 22, I didn't have shit to protect. At 27, I have 
over half a million dollars. It is a different calculus now than it used to be. And it's not uncommon for people to accrue a substantial amount of assets or liabilities by the time they get married, making prenups a little more common and necessary than they were in the 20th century when the trope was that prenups were for the rich old man with a younger woman. So I'm going to give a high-level explanation of the way different states treat assets and debt in a divorce to highlight why a prenup might be a good idea for you. But keep in mind that every state or country is different, and both you and your partner will want to hire your own representation for the prenup setup that can walk you through the serious in-the-weeds details. This is just to give you the lay of the marital land, so to speak. So there are two types of states. You've got your community property states and you've got your equitable distribution states. And weirdly enough, it matters where you get divorced, not where you get married. We got married in a community property state in Texas, which means if you don't have a prenup and you get divorced there, you can expect the court to basically look at everything you have together, acquired during the marriage, and then split it in half, regardless of who earned what and who bought what. Same goes for debt, which is the ugly side of this, because if one spouse accrues a bunch of debt, that gets split evenly between both spouses too. Kim is going to speak to this a little bit more, so keep listening. This is arguably to me the freakier part of not having a prenup in a community property state, because even if you don't care about getting the house or the earned income that may be rightfully yours, if your spouse has a secret shopping or gambling addiction that you didn't know about and it was financed by debt, that debt becomes your problem. So no bueno. Okay, this is getting a little bit heavy. So Nick, please warm up your voice and give these folks a nice love-themed falsetto into break. Hope you had a nice lovey-dovey reset because we are jumping right back into the dark stuff with community property states. The following states fit into that category. Arizona, California, Idaho, Louisiana, Nevada, New Mexico, Texas, Washington, and Wisconsin. It's important to note that you could choose to split things differently if you both agree upon it and that a prenup can override these requirements of the state where they basically just default to splitting everything down the middle. So those are your community property states. The rest of the states are what's called equitable distribution states, which means that things won't be split equally, but equitably, which is annoyingly discreet. But that could mean things end up getting split 50-50. But if one spouse significantly out-earns the other spouse, it's possible the spouse with higher earnings would be awarded more of the marital assets if it were clear that they were the primary contributor. So remember how I said my husband was all, why are you asking me about divorce law? Well, it turns out that if one party during the prenup negotiation doesn't have their own representation or is somehow underrepresented or in a state of duress during the negotiations and contract writing, it may not be enforceable. AKA, you have someone forcing a prenup on you. You don't have your own counsel and you have two days to sign it. That prenup is likely not legally enforceable. 
You want both parties to retain their own counsel and have the same amount of time and bargaining power during the process to make sure that it is legally enforceable. Now, I neither have a prenup nor am qualified to discuss them beyond my own anecdotes and high-level findings, so I wanted to bring in someone who is. Enter my guest, Kimberly. Kim is not only a former Wall Street attorney, but currently a managing director and partner at the Bonson Group. She is a personal wealth specialist and a certified divorce financial analyst, which means she analyzes and consults on the financial aspect of divorce settlements of a lot of people. And when we started our interview with her, she said, I don't want to say I'm a man hater, but, and then kind of trailed off. And I was like, I love you. So here's Kim. Hi, my name is Kimberly Davis. And I am a wealth manager. I'm a managing director and partner at the Bonson Group. We are a wealth management firm with offices in Newport Beach, California, and New York City. And I am also the founder and creator of The Fiscal Feminist, which is a platform for women to become more engaged with their finances. I'm trying to empower each and every one of y'all to get out there Take hold of your finances. Don't let anyone else control your life and to be CEO of your life. Amen to that. Kim, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to the Money with Katie show. Well, thank you, Katie, for having me. I'm super excited. I've listened to some of your podcasts. They're awesome and I love what you're doing. Well, thank you. Today, I want to start out kind of given your background and what you're passionate about. I would love to know what you think about what should everyone in a legally binding relationship be focused on financially? So this is a really big question, right? Because it encompasses a lot of tactical things and also psychological things, right? Because Mm -hmm. our lives are these tapestries of many personal relationships that often become legal And many times we let emotions and our feelings get involved in how we approach those relationships, which can actually have an effect on our financial uh, situation, either during the journey of that relationship or when that relationship ends. And in a perfect world, like we don't want to think about that. We just want to be in the moment. But honestly, it's super, super important. I've just written a book called The Fiscal Feminist, A Financial Wake-Up Call for Women, I talk about all things financial that women need to strategize about, but I have a whole chapter devoted to this. So I always say to people, um, you have to protect yourself in these relationships, especially if you're going to live with somebody or you're going to marry somebody. I think our love narrative has to change. It doesn't mean that you don't love somebody because you want to talk about money or you want to talk about the future and possible things that can happen. You know, shit happens in life. That's just the way it is. I wish I could tell everybody that. It's not true, but, you know, it happened to me. I was a lawyer, and then I was an investment banker. I was married for 23 years. That being said, I never expected what happened to me to happen. If I had done what I'm telling everyone else to do, it would have been way better. Um, So that's what motivates me to do this. So the first thing I would say to everybody is, you must be your best advocate. You have to talk about these things. You cannot let other people kind of sway you not to do that. It doesn't mean you're a bad person, and it doesn't mean that you're not someone who could be terribly in love with somebody. It just means that you're sensible and you're protecting yourself down the line. So you need to have a roadmap for all these relationships. So I would say you want to money-proof your relationships from the get-go. So what does that mean? That means have a talk and find out what exactly the other person currently has going on. What are their debts? 
What mortgages, uh, what credit card debt do they have? What other obligations do they have for supporting other people, whether it's child support, alimony? Mm. Maybe they have to uh, care for an elder parent. Um, there could be other obligations that you haven't really discussed with this person, and you want to understand their full picture. Have they had bankruptcies? Are they in the middle of a bankruptcy? So that's the first thing. You also want to understand what their financial assets are. So, you know, be transparent about yourself and ask them the same questions. Once you have a clear picture of where each of you are before whatever it is you're about to do, you also need to have a conversation that, you know what, you're both stakeholders. And that goes through the course of the relationship, right? Say I'm going to stay home and be a caregiver and you might be the primary breadwinner. Well, that doesn't give you the right to dominate all the financial decisions. Right. That is just not cool at all. And so we need to talk about that from the get-go, right? So that everyone's on the same page about this. So both people need to have a stay. The other thing is don't keep secrets. When people keep secrets in relationships, this is where the legally binding will get complicated down the road when the legal part starts to play in if there's a split, right? Because people will be like, oh, wow, uh, I didn't know that, or I didn't read the tax return that I signed that, you know, had a whole bunch of secrets <laughs> in it that I didn't know what the hell was going on. So you need to make sure that you don't keep secrets and you keep an eye out for each other to make sure the other person isn't keeping secrets. What are some things that people can do proactively to make sure that they're being transparent with their money within the relationship? On a more kind of global basis is if you are in a relationship with somebody and uh, there are financial elements to that, i.e. you're marrying them or you're living with them, then you need to have a budget. And that's one way for transparency to manifest itself, to reveal itself, right? Because you're going to sit down and you're going to have realistic goals, right? You cannot have pie in the sky bullshit, okay? <laughs> this is the time to get real with each other. What do you both want to do? What can you really afford? Who's the spender? Who's the saver? And how are you going to set that all of those uh, things together into a realistic budget that you can both follow and monitor and keep checking in with? And that will keep you on course to A, being more transparent and to getting used to having conversations about money and about finances mm -hmm. and about financial obligations that will come down the road. And then I would say when you do get involved with another human being in a legal binding relationship, always try to maintain your autonomy in certain ways. You can still be a good wife, a good mom, a sex pistol, all that good stuff, <laughs> attractive, and still have autonomy with your money. Well, that's where I kind of wanted to go next because I think it makes sense to me as an earner who's in a dual income situation okay, that's obvious. Like I make my own money. I keep my skills up to date. If something goes south, I am confident in my ability to continue to support myself. No problem. But if we're in a situation where let's say one spouse wants to be the stay-at-home parent, and I think, you know, right now, as of 2022, I think 70% of stay-at-home parents are women. So it is predominantly something that's going to affect a woman. And Maybe that arrangement does work for the family and everyone's happy wh while it's happy, but how should that spouse protect themselves as the non-income producing spouse? Like, are there protections baked in for them? Is there anything that ahead of time they can kind of get ahead of so that they don't find themselves stay-at-home mom 15 years out of the workforce and then in a situation where they're splitting up and 
yeah. feel like they don't really know what's going to happen next. Yeah. So there's a couple of things that you can do before you get married. So yeah, one thing I would say to everybody um, who works and a lot of people say, well, I'm young. I'm not making that much money. I don't care. These things, you're going to continue to grow throughout your life. So this is set. It's laying your infrastructure, right? So the first thing you should do, um, and I think everyone should consider, is to have their own trust. And that will be a separate property trust. If that is funded by your earnings, you have property that maybe you inherited or things that you own prior to cohabiting or marrying somebody. They're usually fairly straightforward, especially for younger people. So it won't be that expensive to set up, but it's a way of ring fencing all of your property and uh, money investments into a trust. Hmm. And you can also pick who you're going to leave it to. So you can set up your own beneficiaries with that. But it's a way of ring fencing your separate property before you get into a marriage because it is in something that is not commingled. It's separately yours. You can always set up a joint trust with a, a spouse later on. That won't affect that. Mm. But that property will always be ring fenced as your separate property. Interesting. And so how does that relate back to the prenup? Is that part of the prenup one in the same? It's kind of like in conjunction. You know, there's several things that you can do in a prenup. So the point of the prenup is to kind of, while everyone is still getting along, is to be able to have a rational discussion about how you're going to split up the property and, you know, how things are going to be divided down the way. So it's always better to have these discussions when everybody isn't heightened in their emotion. Yeah. And also something to keep aware of is when you start going into a divorce proceeding, it's a highly documented proceeding. And people will, once the divorce begins, often not be forthcoming with documentation. Mm. So that's why a prenup helps to make sure that those things don't happen later down the line that could cause for a lot of um, fogginess and hidden assets and things to that nature. Hmm. But I would say there are two things you can do. One is you're going to live with somebody long-term and not get married. You should have a cohabitation agreement. That's something different from a prenup. It can morph into a prenup if you ultimately do get married. But people who live together have different rights than people who are married. And so Mm. uh, before we even go to the prenup, I would say in a cohabitation agreement, you should really spell out who owns what, how things will be distributed if you do decide to move out and not be together. Mm. Say if you decide to buy assets together, how is that going to be split down the line? Like if you buy a house with somebody and you're not married and one person puts a mortgage uh, down payment down and the other person's paying the mortgage, how's that going to work out? Because it may work out that nobody's going to move out because they've never discussed this and they don't exactly know how to split it up. I would not advise anyone to commingle assets if they're cohabiting or to have joint credit cards. Hmm. But the cohabitation agreement is like a precursor to the prenup. Now, if you're going to go get married before you take that leap, I would have a crystal clear conversation with your future spouse. Great. So separate trusts and cohabitation agreements for assets that are accrued before the marriage. What about assets that are accrued during the marriage? Like how would someone who's been a stay-at-home parent or plans to be the lower earning spouse continue to maintain their standard of living for themselves and any kids in the picture if there's a big discrepancy in earning power. What you're going to do in this prenup is you're going to, A, delineate what separate property. What do you already have that's separate property? That's in your separate property trust. Yeah. So that stays outside this whole discussion. The potential for alimony 
which I'm not a big fan of alimony because people can be deadbeats and not pay it, but yeah. you cannot address alimony in a post-nup. Oh, weird. It will not be enforceable. So you can only address it in a prenup. So it should be addressed in some fashion in the prenup. And another reason you want to do this is if you go through mediation or you end up having a litigated divorce where a judge decides, yeah. then you're in the hands of some human being that doesn't even know your life and they're deciding how things mm-hmm. are getting split up. So People will say, well, you know, there's equitable distribution states and community property states. Everything kind of gets split down the middle. But that is a fallacy, okay? Splitting stuff down the middle is often not the fairest and most equitable way of distributing property. And that is especially true for someone who stays at home to be a caregiver. Now, 75% of caregiving in this country is done by women, even if they are breadwinners even if they are primary breadwinners. Mm. I know not why, but that is how it goes. And all of this is something that I think has been really neglected in the divorce uh, separation kind of negotiations. And lawyers are not completely equipped to deal with this. Uh, you can get a certified divorce financial analyst. That's I have that designation. They're very good at understanding uh, tax mitigation and tax consequences and also being able to run actual cash flows to show you where you might be under certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. But my thing is, and something I've been banging the drum about and talking to uh, divorce and family lawyers about is I would like to see a formula for people who stay at home that make that choice. I'm going to stay at home with my kids. I did it. I did it myself. That's why I'm so passionate about it. I not only stayed at home. It's such an easy job, right? It's so easy compared to the corporate world. (laughs) Great hours, fair pay. Right. When I was an IPO lawyer uh, back in the day, I used to pull all-nighters all the time, and I thought I was working hard. When I had three kids two years apart, uh, yeah, I would have gone back to practice law at any minute because I could go get my nails done, (laughs) take a shower, wash my hair, do normal things. And that's on that. (laughs) So one thing I do want to talk about, though, is this stay-at-home mom thing is when a person decides to stay at home or be part-time and they do it for a number of years and maybe they end up suffering a gray divorce like I did in my early 50s, there could be a long period of time when you were either kind of in it, but not really in it in the professional world. And a lot of things happen. Mm -hmm. A, you've lost a lot of professional development. Yeah. B, you have no longer contributed to your 401k or your social security mm-hmm. over a long number of years. Obviously, these retirement accounts, like most of my listeners have those, and they are by definition individual and like just in your name. Are those still fair game in divorce proceedings? Like, could someone's 401k get split in half? Yes, they could. There's a thing called um, a quadro, which is a qualified domestic court order. But there's a couple of things I want to talk about on that score. So one, you can always get the spousal benefit of your spouse, even in divorce, if you are married for 10 years Mm. and you don't get remarried again. Even if that spouse, your ex-spouse gets married 15 more times, you can still get their spousal benefit. Hmm. But the spousal benefit is half of what their benefit is. So even if you are getting that, if you had stayed in the workforce and were making a lot of money, um, you would probably end up having a greater social security benefit. So you do have that. So that that's one thing. Also, when you're married, you could get what they call a spousal IRA. Oh, yeah. If your um, spouse is working 
then you can contribute to an IRA, even though you're not technically working and usually you have to be an earner, but that's only 6,000 a year. So it's not gonna be a game changer. Now in a divorce proceeding, you can get what's called a quadro. Like I said, that's a separate order and a separate thing that will happen usually after the decree has been issued, then you go for the quadro. Not all quadros though are created equally. A lot of it depends on the plan administrator of the 401k of the spouse mm. as to how how much can be distributed and how that all works. Now, quadros are beneficial because for a non-working spouse, it can provide them with retirement nest egg, um, and it's mm-hmm. not a taxable event. So, you know, you don't get a 10% penalty for that occurring. If it happens before 59 and a half, you don't have to pay taxes, mm. so it's a distribution. So there is that possibility, but um, going back to the stay-at-home mom, I mean, that may not be enough, in my opinion, to compensate someone who's really taken the hit on a lot of things. Because if you haven't been working for 15 years, you're going to have a transition to get back in the workforce. Right. And this could be long or it may not be at all. I, I don't know. You know, it's. Well, and you might, I mean, if your partner has been working the whole time and is in a very high paid role, you're probably accustomed to a certain type of lifestyle, which if you're coming in after not working for 15 or 20 years, you're likely not going to be able to just replace that income, but you're, you're not really probably wanting to like go back to the way you were living when you were 25 years old. Exactly. I think what should happen um, and what should be put in a prenup is there should be a formula that A, values what if you were to contribute the max contribution on your 401k throughout the entire time that you are not in the workforce, what is that number? Hmm. You are going to be performing invisible labor, yeah. i.e. childcare, housework, whatever. That is worth something. If you were to pay someone to do that, what is that amount? And what would that be equivalent to if you were a paid employee within the home doing that? Then I would say, we have to incorporate some kind of value into the transition to re-enter the workforce. Maybe you need further education. Maybe you need to get your skill set sorted out. I don't know. And then I think there should be an inflator put on that for the number of years that you've been outside the workforce. That's going to come up with a number. That's your base case. At least you know if all else goes awry, there is a formula in there that will decide the calculation of what it is you should be getting as opposed to a judge saying, hey, we're going to split it down the middle. Right. Well, splitting it down the middle often isn't equitable. And many women want to keep the family home because they have the kids and they don't want to disrupt everybody. But that's also often not to their economic benefit because the family home has property taxes, insurance, maintenance, mm-hmm. and their settlement is probably not going to be enough money unless you know there's a large settlement to carry that expense as well as all the other expenses that they're going to have sitting, you know, at their feet. And they're probably going to end up having to sell that house. So I like the idea of beefing up the prenup about this particular issue. And those are calculations and decisions that, to your point, it sounds like can be agreed upon and put into that legal agreement. So 20 years down the road, you can say, well, you know, we already said this is what it would have ended up costing. This is the value we assigned to the stay-at-home spouse. So now it's not up for discussion. It's not up to, for a judge. We've quantified my worth and we've added tax and that's what it is. Yeah. And it doesn't preclude you getting more right through the, mm-hmm. the process, but it just at least says this is the, the basic 
valuation of what I'm doing. Yeah. It's valuable. It's not something that gets swept to the side during a divorce proceeding. Because I know mm-hmm. during my divorce proceeding, when the fact that I moved to England and pretty much put my whole career on hold for 14 years, and I was a stay-at-home mom for 10 years, none of that was calculated into any of this. It, you know, it was kind of like, okay, well, you know, you lived your life. This guy lived his life. You have the three kids and we're going to split this. But I still had three kids that were in school, one that was in university. It was very unpleasant. Mm-hmm. So if we had had that discussion before, also, it just is a discussion about the fact that, you know, when you're staying at home, you're not living off the fat of the land, right? Yeah. You're doing a job. You're bringing up the children. I mean, women, unfortunately or fortunately, because being a mom is very fulfilling, but, you know, we're expected to work like we don't have children and to be moms like we don't work. That's not possible. And what we do is valuable for society because that's how society grows and prospers by having children in it. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, if people are going to be penalized for having children and aren't going to get down the road what they need to have to live an appropriate lifestyle in retirement, well, uh, then I would say people aren't going to want to have children anymore. Sounds like a raw deal to me. <laughs> it is. Life is going to take multiple different directions during the marriage, right? Like things are going to change from the day you get married to eventually if your marriage does end in divorce, things are going to happen in between. Let's say that neither partner is coming into the marriage with any debt, but that one person during the marriage accrues a bunch of debt and then they get divorced. Are there any types of provisions that can be put into a prenup or a postnup that would prevent that debt from becoming the other spouse's problem? Or is this something where, when you mentioned keeping an eye on each other, not telling lies, you know, not keeping secrets, is that something where kind of no matter what you put in a prenup or postnup, if your partner racks up a bunch of gambling debt, half of that is going to be your problem? Yeah, so debt, And credit are very tricky issues, um, and they can't really be addressed directly in an agreement before marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really depends on what kind of what state you live in, to be honest. Mm -hmm. So if you are uh, in a community property state, there's one set of rules. If you're in an equitable distribution, there's another set of rules. So in equitable distribution states, you can keep your credit separate. You can have credit cards that are in your own name. I would highly recommend not only that you have a credit card in your own name and try to keep your credit separate because the minute you have a joint credit card or you co-sign or a guarantor, then you're commingling your debt, right? Mm -hmm. A judge will decide in the divorce decree or proceeding who they think is best able to pay off certain debts and will assign those debts to the people. Mm. In a community property state, whether it's your debt or your spouse's debt, the court, the state believes that you are gonna benefit from that other person's debt. So they are going to attribute it to you, whether you did it or you didn't do it. So say you guys have an agreement, like I'm going to pay the Visa card and I'm going to, you're going to pay the MasterCard and say one of you doesn't follow through. Well, guess what? In a community property state, they're going to come after the person who wasn't responsible for paying it. That happened to me. And um, I was like, yeah, but it wasn't my responsibility. And they were like, uh, we don't care. If you don't pay it, it's going to be on your, That's scary. it's going to be delinquency on your credit report. A lot of women, and maybe men, but a lot of women are not going to have credit because they haven't had their own credit cards or they haven't had their own autonomous money throughout the marriage. Mm -hmm. They haven't done any of these steps. They get out of the divorce. They have no credit. They can't even go buy a car. 
I mean, oh my God. it takes them a long time to reestablish their credit. So if their credit is already damaged by what a partner is doing, this is very, very long lasting to them. It can have very negative effects. And again, it's usually going to happen the older you get because you've been following this kind of lifestyle for a long time. So this is a, a very tricky area and you got to keep your eye on the ball on this because yeah. you really can't put it in an agreement and have it be enforceable. If somebody is in their 20s or maybe early 30s, they're getting married and they're they're wanting to get a prenup or maybe they're already married and they want a postnup now that they're listening to this and kind of seeing the value, assuming they don't have a super complicated situation where like, oh, there's multiple properties or ex-spouses or child support, I mean, like simple two people coming together, really run of the bill. What should somebody plan to budget for a prenup? Like, is there a range that you could give our listeners for how much these typically cost? Well, again, you know, obviously depends where you live because New York City is going to be one number and somewhere in the middle of Arkansas is probably going to be another number. But there's a variety of ways that you can do it. The best optimal scenario for a prenup is for one person to have a lawyer who prepares it and for the other person to have a lawyer who reviews it. That is the most enforceable agreement. If only if both people don't have a lawyer, then the court may feel that one person was somehow coerced right. into signing it and didn't really have a good review of it. Mm-hmm. Now you can have a do-it-yourself one, but those are can be not as enforceable sometimes because the court wants to know that there's clarity and every everybody understood what they were signing up for. But you know, I'd say that's better than nothing. But I think prenups can range depending, I think the simplest of prenups, I would say would be anywhere in the kind of two grand, Uh, maybe in New York, you're kind of going to four grand, but it's just in that realm. But look at it as an upfront cost, right? Mm -hmm. Even if it were, if you had a more complicated situation and it was five or $6,000, that money is going to bear the fruit of thousands and thousands of dollars later on in your life that will really cause uh, will prevent you from really having to do some unpleasant things to just stay afloat when you're at a low point in your life emotionally, when you're mourning the death of a, a marriage or a breakup. Yeah. All of those things take away from our ability to like go out in the world and kind of reestablish ourselves because we it takes time to get over it, you know? Yeah. It's an insurance policy that you're paying for in full upfront. <laughs> exactly. And Um, I would say talk to a couple of different lawyers, interview them just like you would anybody else um, and make sure that you're all on the same page and the person is competent and has a good track record. But if push comes to shove, especially in cohabitation, you can also do a do-it-yourself one. They have, you know, all kinds of resources online, Hmm. but legal representation gives you the gravitas for enforceability. Awesome. So Kim, is there anything else that we haven't covered today that feels important to you? There's one other thing I I would like to mention really quickly, and that's hidden assets. And again, not so much in a prenup or a postnup, but if there is a business in before, maybe it's a second marriage, you should address a company or a firm or something that you, as a family business, Mm. because these are easy ways for people to hide assets in a divorce. And a lot of times companies or Businesses that look profitable before the divorce all of a sudden become not profitable when you're in the middle of the divorce. And then people don't want to produce documentation, so you have to subpoena it. So again, all conversations, if your spouse or has a family business and you're going to live your life off the proceeds of that, 
Try to understand that as well as you can. And in addition to reviewing your credit report, I would highly recommend all tax returns. You should review mm. and look at closely all the schedules. The schedules have all the assets on them and that's a good place to hide assets. Make sure you review every tax return when you're married and or you're filing a joint tax return before you sign it. Wow. This is really interesting because I I do all of this for our family. I file our taxes. And my I don't think my husband's even like ever seen it. No. He's going to listen to this and be like, she's hiding something from me. <laughs> well, you know, it's just one of those things. I've had people not look at it. And I had a woman call me up one day and say, all the money in my checking account is gone. And you know why? Because her husband, who she was separated from, had been defrauding the IRS. They like seized They it? can just grab the money right out of your bank account. And she had to file. There's a form you can file to try to protest it. But she didn't have any money for a while. And he was at, uh, MIA. Couldn't find the guy anywhere. Oh, my God. I think, yeah. And in closing, I just want to say that <laughs> I feel like... No one gets married to somebody expecting any of this to happen. Hell You're not no. going to marry somebody because you, with that inkling or that suspicion. So I think that's where, like, the best of intentions are always taken into a marriage. But even as crazy as these stories sound, it's like, you'd rather be safe than sorry. But thank you so much for being here, Kim. I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you, Katie. Thank you for fighting the good fight and doing what you're doing. Keep getting that message out, talking about all these issues. <laughs> I know some people might think they're boring, but they are not boring because they could save your ass someday and you will be so happy that you listened to Katie about this. <laughs> and to Kim, thank you so much. All right, y'all, that's all for this week. I will see you next week, same time, same place on The Money with Katie Show. Nick, bring it home for us. This interview with Kim went on for quite a bit longer than what we were able to include in our episode today. So if you would like to listen to the full extended interview for an even deeper dive, head to our show notes and you will be taken to the video version of the full interview on YouTube. Our show is a production of Morning Brew and is produced by Nick Torres and me. Sarah Singer is our VP of Multimedia and additional content editing comes from our lovely senior editor, Hannah Velez. Our video producers are Emily Milliron and Christy Muldoon and Sam Cat is our vice president of Chaos, while Jojo Beans is our chief of Woof, barking at any passerby regardless of how well our recording is going. Hollow, we want prenup, we want prenup, yeah. It's something that you need to have, cause when she leave your ass, she gonna leave with half. 18 years, 18 years, and not, okay, I'm done.